Well, here we are. And we are so sorry to tell you this, but no one wants to hear stories about your cats unless we're talking about Hannah's cats and specifically their little feet. Which may make themselves known in this episode. (laughs) This is Well, Here We Are, a podcast that posts regularly in which we explore the ways pop culture and the humanities matter for our daily lives by distilling them into lists of three-ish things. And if you want to support us, and the work of the pod, head on over to our website, which is wellherepod.com. There are links to extra episode resources and a way for you to send us, if you so choose, your friends and closest confidants, a few extra little dollars. I haven't updated the website in a few months. I never updated my bio. (laughs) (laughs) But by the time... You're listening to this. I may have updated more of it. Hannah, we need to hang out again in person so that we can also update some of those photos. Oh, yeah, that's true. Those are pretty old. If you uh, donate some extra dollars to us, then Suzanne and I could be in the same room together and take some more photos for our podcast. (laughs) We are approaching our three-year friendship anniversary. It feels like we've always been friends, so Mm -hmm. I both can and can't believe it because also all of the pictures that we have are from before COVID times so (laughs) that feels like a lifetime ago okay let's get into it our love for rom-coms has informed our discussion in the past couple episodes mostly because they are revolving around Jane Austen because that's what we did this summer and we will link those in the description box and also (laughs) on the website sooner or later which will be updated (laughs) At some point. But today, we're going to do a deep dive into a contemporary subsection of the, of the genre, which is the sad millennial rom-com. Why are these millennials so sad? I say, <laughs> thinking about my own depression. <laughs> and why are we seeing so many of this type of film? I'm Hannah. And I'm Suzanne. Even though we've been stalling for several minutes by this point. Um, I've got two pieces of business to discuss before we start talking about sad sadness. One of them is that I have to issue a retraction because in our last episode about persuasion, I complimented Dakota Johnson's Italian accent. (laughs) And my Italian friend, Aurora, wrote in and said, Hannah, I'm so sorry, but you're wrong. (laughs) So I have to humbly apologize to all of our listeners for misleading you. Second thing. (laughs) We're moving on. We are doing our feminist book club. And if all goes according to plan, our first book that we're going to read, which is called The Feminine Mystique, we will be discussing in our next episode. If you want to read that with us, we would love to interact with you in this parasocial relationship that we have. All right. So we didn't mention this, but this episode about the sad millennial rom-com is a Sue's explaining episode. So I'm going to be taking you and Hannah through what I would say is kind of an argument that is in development. I did a little Google search and... As far as I know, this phrase, sad millennial rom-com, I have not seen it used anywhere. There's not evidence of it. It's a, okay, I was, I was going to ask you if that was something like a real, a real phrase that people say or if that was a Sue's 
phrase that, that was the Sue says. Yeah. Okay. So I I just happened to probably about four or five months ago on Hulu uh, was watching one and it recommended another and it recommended another. And I was like, why are all of these sad millennials having such a hard time falling in love? Uh, and then I kind of went on the hunt for more of them. And I was like, wow, this really is like a whole subgenre of contemporary rom-coms right now unto its own. So it's not as well known as some other kind of subsections of rom-coms, obviously. You know, you've got your screwball comedy and you've got your 1950s, like, zany masquerade comedies. You've got your Nora Ephron ones. So, Hannah, when you hear that phrase, sad millennial rom-com, does anything come to mind to you? Is is there a movie that you're like, oh, I know exactly kind of what movie that evokes? I kind of think of season one of Master of None, which is a TV and not a movie. So I don't know if that counts, No, but I it think sure made me I sad. Think, I think you're right. <laughs> I watched it a long time ago. I just remember the feelings that it gave me that is just like these people who are these millennials who are working really hard at finding success and finding love and the way that their relationships develop is just kind of a, <laughs> it's just a bummer. And yeah. it just like, I felt, I remember feeling very disillusioned about the whole idea of having a relationship when I watched it Mm -hmm. because they don't, they, they put so much effort into this relationship and they don't grow in the same direction. And eventually, you know, they split up and it's just, it just all feels like a waste. Yeah. I was talking about this with friend of the pod jewels and I said, you know, the sad millennial rom-com really does love the shrug emoji ending. Like that's kind yes, of... Yes, 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 That's mm-hmm. kind of like how the movies end. And she said, yeah, you've got to love a character journey that goes from sad emoji shrug to thoughtful emoji shrug. <laughs> so like... Yes. So the, so the growth is like, I'm not as sad anymore. And, and that I think leaves films in general in a really kind of weird place. I think that is sometimes how how I have felt in my own personal relationships in which I feel like I I have put so much effort into them and not just romantic relationships but like sometimes you know friendships and other kinds of relationships where I I feel like I'm trying so hard and it just doesn't work out and sometimes when it's over I'm like well I guess I sort of grew in these ways but was it worth it? <laughs> And it's, it's done in a way that's not, and we're going to get into this, but it's not, it's not like friends, right? Where you could say, well, well, isn't that what friends was? I never doubted for a second that all of these people were going to be fine, right? Like, yeah, there's like no doubt that they're going to be fine because it's got this like lightness, this, this buoyancy, there's like kind of some mention of the fact that Joey and Rachel don't make very much money. Yeah, I think about that a lot, that in season one, there's this, there's one episode where they, that is the whole plot of the episode, that half of them make money and half of them don't make any money. And I, I think about it all the time. Yeah, but then But it, they still make it work. They're still, they're still friends. And as a plot point, though, that doesn't change the direction of the show, right? Yes. It's, it's uh-huh. not really ever brought up again. It's just kind of a thing of like, we did it and now we can kind of, we addressed it, that there's an economic disparity in this group of friends and then we're going to move on. No, the story arc of friends is like, 
when you're in your 20s, your friends are your family. And when you're in your 30s, your friends have their own families. And that is, that's where we kind of end up. And it's, it feels very definitive at the end of the show. And it does not feel like a shrug. Well, I think that is a great transition to this body of work that we are going to be talking about. This is not an exhaustive list because I made up the genre. <laughs> so, uh, so we can. So it is definitive. <laughs> yeah. So currently it's definitive. But also, one of the interesting things about this is that I would say none of these movies are really Hollywood produced films, they're more indie films. They showed at film festivals. They're, they're a little, they're not the big blockbusters. It's not Marry Me on uh, Amazon Prime currently starring J-Lo and Owen Wilson, which is a rom-com that came out last year, right? These are mm-hmm. more independent features. So here are some movies that I watched. I watched Happy Thank You More, Please, which came out in 2011. What If, 2013. Obvious Child, 2014. Sleeping with Other People and It Had to Be You both came out in 2015. Brand New Old Love came out in 2018. Plus One, 2019. Palm Springs, 2020. And then We Broke Up, which was in 2021. So it kind of does span the past decade that every like year we get a couple of these movies where you're kind of entering the sad millennial rom-com space. How many of those have you seen? Have you heard of any of those? I've seen Happy Thank You More, Please. I saw it in theaters, and I think I cried. I haven't seen any of the other ones, even though I told you I would watch Palm Springs. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's okay. I am going to potentially spoil you on a couple of plot points, but that's okay. what you get I, for not watching it. I know. I deserve it. Let's continue. <laughs> so a couple things to keep in mind, kind of like I just mentioned, not all rom-coms that feature millennials or that are currently coming out today would be considered a sad millennial rom-com in my opinion. I think there's the sad millennial rom-com and then there's the sunny millennial rom-com. There's a great rom-com on Netflix that I love called Set It Up that has Lucy Liu and- mm-hmm. uh, Seen it. Yeah, it's so great. That's not a sad millennial rom-com. That is no. what I would say is a sunny millennial rom-com. Are they in their late 20s kind of figuring stuff out? Yeah. Are they kind of in dead-end jobs? Yeah. But it ends and everything is fine. She's- being mentored by one of the greatest sports writers in the country, they're going to, they're going to be good, right? Uh, So not all rom-coms that feature millennials are a sad millennial rom-com. I think Sleeping with Other People, which is one of the movies I mentioned, could be up for debate, but it shares enough similarities that I included it. And also, it is not a comma between sad and millennial. It's a hyphen. These are not sad, comma, millennial rom-coms. The, the thing that connects these is that the millennials are sad. <laughs> the, <laughs> the millennials are not all right. The millennials are not all right. And then the tone of the movie can actually be a little lighter. You'll watch the trailers, and the trailers are often very upbeat. But it's the characters themselves are, are kind of in a state of bummedness, all right? There's not really an umbrella for this, but I have four. I have four things. (laughs) Okay. 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 So thing one we're going to talk about is the opportunity or kind of the challenge for the sad millennial rom-com in general. Uh, Two, I'm going to introduce to you the SMRC. What is this film? 
Three, I'm going to tell you what I think the problem with this movie is. And then four, I'm going to give some prescriptions for how I think we can make it work. Okay. I see we have sort of a bare bones outline right now. I'm parting the curtains for you, listener. Mm -hmm. And in the outline, you have SMRC written a few times. Yes. Sad millennial rom-com. I'm going to go ahead and call that a smirk. And I know that you're worried that I'm going to just make you sad talking about this, but I don't think I am a little that. worried about it. Yeah. I just, I get sad so easily and there's so many just like existential threats, but it's going to be fine because we're friends and I trust you. Okay. Well, to break that trust, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing we're going to talk about is the opportunity or the challenge for the rom-com. So for this section, I've got a little clip from the movie Plus One um, that we'll go ahead and insert here. Do you love me? I don't know. So that's a no. It's an I don't know. Okay. Alice, I just need to be 100% certain with you and I'm not, I'm not right now. Oh my gosh. I. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I I, I should have stopped this ben, a long time ago. This. It's my stop, bad. I'm so sorry. Stop doing this. I'm serious. We have a good thing, okay? I, I'm not. I'm not asking you to marry me. I'm not asking you to move in. I mean, what? What do you need? What? This is good. You just have to give it a chance. I, just, just try for me. I can't. Why can't. I can't just say fuck it and then hurt you the way that Nate did. I'm sorry, but that would kill me if I did that to you. Don't say that to me. You are hurting me. Way more than Nate ever hurt me. God, Ben, you talk about how you want love. You're always looking for love, and I'm here. It's standing right in front of you, and you can't. Alice, I'm so sorry. Don't. Don't fucking say you're sorry. You are not sorry, Ben. You think you're this good guy, and you're not. You are not. Okay, well, that was very sad. <laughs> yes, it was, very, it was very sad. What are kind of the themes of that argument that stuck out to you? People not knowing what they want and people not knowing themselves. Yes, yes. There is this book that I read for my dissertation. It kind of does a large-scale overview of all rom-coms. And the author says, Quote, the continuing popularity of romantic comedy depends upon their flexibility. The changing social context of romance and the ever-shifting mores surrounding gender, sex, and courtship spark the historical evolution of the genre, which constantly yields new opportunities for creativity. End quote. And so this author, his argument is, that in order for the rom-com to maintain its popularity, it has to be flexible. It has to change to reflect the ways that people are actually falling in love. This is the challenge for the contemporary rom-com, the smirk, uh, but it's also an opportunity, right? Uh, okay, so when we see You've Got Mail, they're just like, we're adult professionals and we just want to be in love and be in happy relationships. But like in smirks, we don't know what we want. We don't know if we want to be in happy relationships and we don't know what happy relationships even are. And we don't know how to get out of our way to have the thing that we say that we want, right? We, we get the thing and then we're like, oh, now that I have the thing, is this actually the thing that I want? Which is kind of why like 
boomers and Gen X kind of make fun of millennials sometimes. I mean, this episode does feel like a personal attack already, but... (laughs) So since 1978, basically, there is this famous, or probably now infamous at this point, or maybe notorious article written by film critic Brian Henderson, where he basically pronounced that the rom-com was dead. He said... (laughs) Good prophecy, Brian. He was like, look, it's... We've run out of ways to tell these same stories. It's not connecting to how people actually live their lives and actually fall in love. Uh, So he declared the genre dead. And since that time, there has been probably a big pronouncement that the rom-com has died every generation or every decade, I would say. Every decade, there's an Atlantic article or a Guardian article or a New York Times article saying, why don't rom-coms work anymore? But it, it never really went anywhere, right? It's just maybe you don't have a Nora Ephron releasing a You've Got Mail. You've got these smaller indie films, you've got Hallmark films, but people are still watching them. But I think kind of what can happen at particular decades is that creators, directors, producers, writers start to notice a shift in these, uh, what Grindon refers to as the social context of romance. And they kind of They make an attempt to try to capture that shift in film, and the first several attempts are never very successful. I I put in um, our file a excerpt from a book, and it's kind of a longer quote, but I'm wondering if you would be be willing to read it for us, and I can I can set it up when you've got it. Dang, this is long. Yeah, I know. I'm so sorry. So, (laughs) is it the whole the whole thing? I think so, yeah. This book that I read uh, is called From Hollywood with Love. It's kind of an overview of the seminal rom-coms from the 2000s, 2010s, and 2020s. And seminal meaning where they were notable for some reason because they pointed to a new trend or a low point in the genre. And this chapter that this excerpt is from is talking about specifically the films No Strings Attached and Friends with Benefits. And the way that these films were kind of trying to attack the way millennials date. And neither were very successful at it. No Strings Attached was directed by Ivan Reitman. He was 65 years old at the time he directed this film. And he and his partner... (laughs) So he knew what the kids were doing. He knew what the kids were doing. He specifically asked Liz Merriweather, who was the creator of New Girl, and she was 30 at the time, to write the screenplay. Being like, hey, I've, I've noticed the thing, this thing about how youths are dating. Uh, <laughs> would you write a movie about it that I will direct and produce? And so this is from this book, From Hollywood with Love, kind of talking about the inception of this movie. Okay, here I go. This is a quote. Quote, we always liked this idea of people in their 20s at a time of Facebook and texting who have romantic relationships where they don't even see each other for half their conversations. It seemed like an opportunity to do a good comedy, says Reitman. You can see the generation gap between the contemporary material and director Ivan Reitman, married for 35 years, who openly spoke about how he was trying to wrap his head around the difference between the way he had dated and the way modern singles were dating. I noticed from my own kids that with this generation in particular, young people find it easier to have a sexual relationship than an emotional one, said Reitman at the time. No Strings Attached is, in the end, a romantic comedy about a type of relationship the director doesn't actually believe in. 
I think it's possible to have a no strings attached relationship, but it's probably going to be a short one, he says. The simplicity of no strings soon starts to dissolve. In the end, neither no strings attached nor friends with benefits is about why a generation of young people overworked, underpaid, and facing financial and cultural barriers to traditional measures of adulthood, like getting married, buying a house, or having children, might choose to have casual flings with a hot friend instead. They're about why those characters are wrong to be having casual flings with their hot friends, and why they should be in a committed, long-term relationship instead. Side note, I don't think this guy would have liked Fire Island. What do you think about Scott Meslau's argument? That this guy doesn't understand the the movie that he's making and that he's trying to teach us a lesson. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, having not seen these movies, but understanding sort of the, the, the thesis of them, it does seem like absolutely this person does not understand that there's more than one kind of relationship and that people can benefit from all kinds of things. Well, even you and I have both seen the Chris Evans, Anna Ferris movie, What's Your Number?, Right. Yes. That that whole movie is like, look, it doesn't matter how much casual sex you have. It has no reflection on who you are as a person. You can as long as you're happy and content, you kind of do whatever you want. And then it's still and then you'll end up with Chris Evans. And then you'll end up with Chris Evans. So they, they kind of always start with this. We are expressing how real people date mm-hmm. while it kind of is showing that how real people date is always going to leave them emotionally unsatisfied. Mm-hmm. That if you do a friends with benefits relationship, it's because you have deep You're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. You usually have deep-seated con- commitment issues that stem from your parents splitting up at some point. <laughs> and uh, you're going to go to therapy, figure it out, and then the person that you had the friends with benefits relationship has reached the same conclusion, and you guys are going to actually end up being together. My thesis is that the smirk kind of became a thing because Hollywood's take on the modern romance dissatisfied the creators who were actually living modern romance. Five out of the eight movies that I watched were written and directed by the same person, right? It, oh, wow. It, it's people saying, I'm trying to make sense about how me and my friends are dating. And to be uh-huh. fair, some of these writers, creators don't, they fall on that exennial generational spectrum. So they're kind mm-hmm. of on the cusp between Generation X and and Millennials. So you could also call this the sad exennial rom-com. When we're defining this genre of Millennials or exennials, are we talking about the people writing the movies or the people who the movie is ostensibly for or the people who star in the movies? Like, what do we, who are we describing as the Millennials? Yeah, so I'm usually, I in general am describing the people that, the characters that are in the movies. Ah, okay. Uh, okay. So the characters that are in the movies tend to be people in their late 20s, early 30s. But you could make the argument since like Happy Thank You More Please came out in 2011. And in 2011, these were people in their late 20s, that in truth, they would be more of a Gen X person than a millennial person. So (laughs) I've kind of categorized them all together. But it's it's in large part based on on who the characters are in the films. Okay. I think there is this kind of part of the reason why this happened, why these movies came to be, was because the ones that were before weren't connecting with the new generation of creators. You can't be Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks at the terminal in Sleepless in Seattle because 
in a post 9-11 world, you can't <laughs> go to the gate of the terminal, right? Like, right. You can't, you can't do what Katherine Heigl does in 27 dresses and just quit your job and follow your dreams because you're probably- Then I get evicted. Because then you would get evicted. You have these creators that are, they are going through it or their friends are going through it and they're kind of trying to see that reflected. Okay. When I analyze a rom-com, I tend to ask myself two questions about what it's trying to sell me. What is this movie trying to tell me makes love funny? And what is this movie trying to tell me about what makes love complicated? What is the comedy of love? And what is the obstacle of love? Different eras have answered collectively that question very differently from one another. And I think what the smirk is trying to do is it's trying to make sense of the current state of the world and tell us why in the midst of all of that nonsense, it is still worth falling in love. And I think it does it with middling success (laughs) over (laughs) the genre, but I think some have pretty interesting answers to that question. Hmm. Okay. I'm intrigued. Let's continue. This next clip, we're going to introduce to you the, the smirk itself and the stars of the smirk. Uh, this next clip is from the movie What If, which came out in 2013. And in America, it was called What If. Uh, other places, it was called The F Word. And the F is friends. There is a fourth option. Yeah. Be honest. Tell her how you feel. Might ruin the friendship, but at least you stood up like a man and expressed your feelings. Wait, I'm sorry. Since when does, does being a man involve expressing your feelings? I mean, did I miss a memo? Because if I recall, being a man meant hiding your feelings forever. Like Bruce Willis. You never see Bruce Willis expressing his feelings. Most you ever get out of Bruce is a hint of melancholy at the edge of a smirk. Do you think Bruce Willis would be happy just being friends? 100% honesty is the foundation of any relationship. Whoa, you are 100% honest with Nicole. Yes. About everything. Yep. What, New Orleans 2006? What was her name? Uh, Fabia? Yeah, she did look like a woman, to be fair. 99% honesty is the foundation of any relationship. No, it's, it's, it's not worth the risk. So the, the clip that I actually wanted to show for that, but I couldn't find this very specific clip, it's from Palm Springs. The Kristen Milotti character says to the Andy Samberg character, well, if it makes you feel any better, my whole family is embarrassed by me. They all see me as a liability who Fs around and drinks too much. And he asks her, well, why would they think that? And she says, because I F around and drink too much. That is kind of a perfect encapsulation of these two clips together of who the stars of the sad millennial rom-com actually are. So the characters themselves tend to be these aimless wanderers. They either work in low-paying creative industries jobs. Oh, no. Um, Yeah. Like, one of them wants to be a jingle writer. Another one wants (laughs) to be an author. (laughs) Or they're working as, like, a barista or kind of like a low-end customer service job. They sometimes still live at home or they live with family members. There's this kind of, like, sense of stasis to all these characters. Like, they're kind of just waiting for their real adult lives to begin. I do not appreciate this attack, Suzanne. <laughs> so sorry. Like, but uh, doesn't this give you a little bit of hope that you no. could? You could <laughs> I too cannot know if I'm in love. But you, that means you could be the star of a rom-com and you too could have your own shrug emoji ending. I 
did that. It sucked. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, aside from the transphobia that was in that clip, uh, what about the crux of the argument? What What is that kind of, if I'm telling you this tells us something about who these people are that are falling in love, uh-huh. what, what does it tell you? It's just... I don't know how to be who I am. <laughs> is what I, uh, how 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 do we be who we am? How does me fit into a relationship? How can me be with another person and make a thing called a relationship with another person? Yeah, we've really taken all of the simplicity out of relationships with these films, right? It's yes. no longer boy meets girl, girl meets boy. The only reason they can't be together is because of some sort of set of contrived circumstances that prevent mm-hmm. them from being together. That now, are always external. Yeah. And this and is it, internal. It's all internal. You are your own worst enemy. Your own psychological struggle is what's preventing you from being happy in a relationship. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So before we get into that, I, I'm going to give you some other elements of these movies. Okay. These movies all have a very strong sense of irony. Oh, okay. I it's like a little a little dollop of Jane Austen. Exactly. But these characters are above falling in love. They're kind of too good for it, right? Okay. Okay. They think it's kind of dumb and who needs to fall in love? It's an antiquated notion anyway. Who even needs to get married? There's this real sense of kind of ironic detachment, which we talked about with our post-feminism episode, that it's mm-hmm. kind of like a hallmark of contemporary media that you kind of have this like hipster irony quality that is added into everything. But the irony of the sad millennial rom-com is actually pretty critical because it allows us to distance, it allows us and the characters to distance ourselves from the very thing that we don't want to admit that we're rooting for. (laughs) There's something about the schmaltz and the sincerity of rom-coms that it feels like the smirk is kind of responding to. Like Uh that it's kind of in, it's in, conversation with the rom-coms that have come before and is kind of trying to point out how those romances are super contrived. They'll often quote rom-coms or uh, explicitly Mm. call out rom-coms for being unrealistic. Uh, They're in conversation with the movies that came before and explicitly in conversation with them because they're mocking these romantic ideals as being absurd. Do you enjoy that? Or are you kind of just like, just be schmaltzy? I think it kind of depends on the level of of self-awareness and how how like layered it is about whether it just says I'm making fun of this thing and that's what I'm doing and doesn't acknowledge the fact that it's also doing that thing. I also think that there is this thing where rom-coms are kind of the genre that people still don't want to admit that they love. Yeah, we've talked about this before and how it's and people love to make fun of it because it's always the thing that it is. Yes. Like you come to a rom-com and then you sort of criticize it for being a rom-com, but you are the one who came to the rom-com. <laughs> yeah, it is what it says on the box, right? Yes, yeah. And so sometimes you'll you'll especially with like male actors that are in these movies, you'll read these interviews with them and they're trying to tell you all the reasons why this rom-com is actually not like all the other rom-coms and it's worth paying attention to. And you're like, oh, (laughs) it's not like other girls. So the second element of this movie that is kind of a defining feature of all of them is that the crisis point in the film, because you always get that where it looks like the couple might be able to make it work and then there's like a conflict that ruptures That Mm -hmm. crisis point is usually brought on 
by an attempt to deepen the intimacy of the relationship. Uh-huh. And then there's and then there's fight and flight. Yes. So in what if the crisis is that he tells her I don't like you just as a friend. I want us to be in a relationship. And it had to be you. He proposes. And plus one, she tells him she loves him, right? That's the that's the clip we saw right at the very beginning. In Palm mm-hmm. Springs, they sleep together. And we broke up. He proposes. There's this attempt to move the relationship forward. And that attempt to move the relationship forward is what creates the psychological crisis. Having not seen any of these movies, I'm like, uh-huh, yep, I'm on board. I see, I see what happened here because I see what happened in my own life. It is a mirror. Yeah. And, <laughs> Again. And also these movies are saying, look, the thing that causes a relationship to hit that make or break point is not that you found out that he was secretly writing an article about you. It's not these it's, it's a It's a, a vulnerability and then an inequality. Yes. Okay, so the third thing that I think is really interesting about these movies is that rather than kind of live in this bright, technicolor world where you never see Meg Ryan go to the bathroom, in these movies, the body, the physical body is unruly. Interesting. And I think this is related to a desire to ground the film in reality. In Happy Thank You More, Please, there's a whole plot around an unplanned pregnancy. And obvious, and she and the uh, other other girl has alopecia, and the other girl has alopecia. In obvious child, Jenny Slate's character is a comedian, and she opens with a comedy monologue about her bodily fluids, and then the heart of the story is about her getting an abortion. Plus one, she gets drunk at a party and throws up and is hungover. And it had to be you. We meet her character because she's go as she's on the toilet. There's there's. <laughs> There's this, like, desire to show the unruly body, I think, as a way to ground it. Um, and related to this is there's this very large emphasis. Is that a purring cat? Yeah, speaking of unruly bodies, my cat has wrapped itself around this microphone. <laughs> uh, incredible. Uh, so related to this is the emphasis that all these movies put on partying and specifically drunkenness. People get drunk, people throw up, people are hungover. And that is kind of a feature of all of these characters, that this is like a regular occurrence for them. Well, it just feels like it's making it relatable and not a fantasy. That when I watch You've Got Mail, I'm like, oh my gosh, everything is so beautiful in this movie. When we focus on the body and we focus on drunkenness and we talk about toilet humor and abortions, it's like, oh, these are things that happen to me or happen to my friends. And I... I recognize this. The smirk is not very... A fantasy? It's not a fantasy. Yeah. Even when you get the happy ending, you kind of have to get it with a little bit of a wink to show, like, we know that this is a little out of the realm of possibility, but isn't that kind of what makes it special? It indulges in the fantasy a little bit, maybe. You're not going to have a Tom Hanks make Ryan moment at the top of the Empire State Building. It's not going to be to that level. And then one of the last things that is really, and we've kind of touched on this already, but the the actual emotional pitfalls of love are very prominent in, mm-hmm. in the smirk. Within these films, you often have characters completely reorient their entire understanding of love and relationships. That was the whole breakup 
scene that we watched in plus one of the person mm-hmm. saying, you think you know what you want out of a relationship, but you have no idea. That's what was going on in that second clip we watched. Yeah. That's what, uh-huh. that is the theme of like, oh, I don't understand the nature of being in love. And I have to completely shift that. Right. Mm-hmm. So these, these characters are not blank slates that are just ready to meet each other. They come with emotional baggage, specifically about relationships. Like real people. But not like, I think you told me about the DVD commentary track for You've Got Mail about the breakup. Oh, yeah. Right? About the fantasy breakup. The first time I put on director's commentary from You've Got Mail, there is no way to turn off the director's commentary for You've Got Mail. So every time I watch it on DVD, I now watch it with the commentary. (laughs) Um, so I hear Nora Ephron's voice in my head more more often than your average bear. In You've Got Mail, the Meg Ryan character and the Greg Kinnear character basically have a fantasy breakup in which they basically are living together and then they both decide we don't love each other, we aren't going to be in a relationship, and that's it. They go their separate ways, they're not sad, they just move on, and that's the fantasy breakup that isn't real and never happens in 27 dresses right Catherine heigl is in love with the ed burns character for i think it's established like five years uh-huh and then she kisses him once and she's like huh and the spell is broken i don't love you and it's just yeah. over in these movies in the smirks they are hung up on exes they are having affairs they are leaving drunken messages on their ex's phones. They they are hung up on them or they're emotionally unavailable in some way. Okay, are you ready to talk about what I think a problem is with these? And you've actually, you've already used the word that I wrote in my my notes. Oh, so you're, okay. Well, you're a little prophetic. I unfortunately, I'm really good at it. I unfortunately don't have a clip to show you, but there's this little scene in the movie We Broke Up which has Aya Cash and William Jackson Harper in it, who plays Sheedy from The Good Place. This movie is a little unlike the others because they actually don't get back together in the end. They start the movie in a long-term relationship. I think they were together for 10 years. He proposes, they break up, and then they go to a wedding and they pretend that they're still together so they don't have to answer any questions. But if you watch that trailer for this movie... They've cut it like it's a rom-com, and they're going to get together at the end. And I'm like, oh, you... Okay, well, I don't appreciate that You know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. When they kind of finally have their state of the relationship talk of, are we going to get back together? This is kind of the argument. She says, no, I don't care about it because I actually like our life. And he says, it's not real. It's a practice life. We're just playing house. We have both of our names on the lease, but that's where it stops for you. I want to spend my life with you, my whole entire life. I want to get a house together. I want to have kids together. I want us to get old and die together. Isn't that what you want? And she says no. That's their, like, their big split. The thing I wrote here is the problem with this movie is that it's a giant bummer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like a bummer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that's like the first problem with these movies. They're maybe accurate that being a millennial or being Gen X or an Xennial, however you want to categorize who the people in these movies are, it's rough and it's not sexy and it's kind of a bummer. I said to Jules when we were talking about it, I was like, it's a rom-com, but everybody sleeps on a futon. Or... (laughs) (laughs) 
And I, I get why this is happening. I've pulled up some facts about the state of millennialhood. From According to Pew Research, millennials are much less likely to be living with a family of their own than previous generations when they were the same age. In 2019, the average man first got married at age 30 and the average woman was 28. That's three years later for both men and women than in 2003, and seven years later than it was in 1968. By age 30, 42% of millennials owned a home, um, and that's compared to 48% for Gen Xers when they were at the same age and 51% for baby movers at the same age. There was a New York Times story about a millennial who's just about to turn 40. She has $180,000 in student loan debt, and she has a good salary. Um, and she said in this article in the New York Times, thinking of marriage in a very practical and unromantic way, it can really make or break you financially. I don't have time to focus on someone else's problems because she's probably bringing me her student loans as a dowry. Right? Oh, God. <laughs> And, and that's kind of like what the context is for being an exennial, being a millennial. It's rough, it's not sexy, and it's kind of a bummer. That's probably why I haven't watched any of these smirks. Because <laughs> I don't need to watch a movie about the life I'm currently living. I would rather watch a fantasy and go to bed happy. So here's the other problem, and we've already said this, but the sad millennial rom-com just kind of tends to end with this like shrug emoji of an ending. I don't think they really know how to stick the landing. They don't know what they're trying to say about love. And it tends to settle around this kind of toothless sort of conclusion that life is terrible, relationships are terrible, but maybe <laughs> you can find someone who is less terrible than everyone else. Like in um, in the episode of Parks and Rec where April and Andy get married and she says, I, I hate most things, but I never seem to hate you. That's the relationship I strive for. Yeah, but in this in the smirk, it's like, I hate most things. I kind of hate you, but yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Let's just get married. Because what <laughs> else are we supposed to do? All my friends are married. It does kind of make sense because when we talk about these other rom-coms that are trying to say something else about like friends with benefits, and then I assume they just get together at the end. Yeah, both um, no strings attached it, and friends with benefits. They just end the up The hot together. people end up together. The hot people end up together. Good for them. But I guess if I watch these movies about like how much work relationships are and how much work I have in my real life and how hard it is to come home and have to do the dishes every day all by myself, that it feels a little bit like a cop-out to just have them get together in the end and everything is great and fine and everybody's happy. That movie isn't what I want either. Because you're like, where did those problems go? Yeah. This is actually a great segue into the third problem that I've noticed, which is that the third acts of the movies, so this is related to the shrug emoji. So if the first and second, if the first act is saying, these are our people and this is what the problem is, and the second act is saying, these are all the ways they try to address the problem, and the third act is, we either solve the problem or we don't solve the problem. Uh -huh. The third acts are kind of a mess. And I, I, my theory is it's because we're not actually naming the actual reason why millennials are in this state of emotional disorder. We're not naming the reasons why millennials have this psychological angst. So It's because of 9-11, isn't it? 
I mean, the financial crisis of 2008, like that could have something to play. I would say millennials are messy because the world itself is messy. But if the if you resolve these problems by the third act with, well, the world is messy, that's not a problem you can fix. So what you have to do is you have to reduce every movie down to this individual person is messy and they make the decision to be less messy. But it never actually addresses how they got that way or or how that happened. They don't want to say that it's a system anymore. They want to say that it's just a singular problem. It reduces yeah. everything down to the individual, which you can do in You've Got Mail. You're not saying the reason that they haven't, that they can't fall in love is because of these structural issues. The reason they can't fall in love is because he put her, her bookshop out of order. And so these two people can solve that problem. Right. These two people, the people in the smirks can't solve the financial crisis. <laughs> but what if they occupy Wall Street? <laughs> Just one of them. That's the problem, I mm-hmm. think, for the sad millennial rom-com is they're kind of bummers because being a millennial is kind of a bummer and they, in general, don't know how to fix that. Huh. Okay. So where does that leave us? I'm it means I have to watch Palm Springs, but I don't have to watch all the other ones because I myself am a sad millennial. Uh, I think you should also watch Obvious Child. It's pretty fantastic. Oh, I'll put it on my list of things Suzanne wants me to watch. I know. I'm so demanding. (laughs) That actually is a great transition to our last and final point. Can we make the sad millennial rom-com work? And I would say yes, absolutely, because some of them do work. Palm Springs as a movie really works. Sleeping with other people, again, that one, some people might say that doesn't qualify. That movie really works. Obvious Child really works. So there are like standout examples of this. I'm going to have you watch this clip from a great example of it, which is Palm Springs. And yes, I know that it's crazy odds that the person I like the most in my entire life would be someone I met while I was stuck in a time loop. But you know what else is crazy odds? Getting stuck in a time loop. (sighs) Dot, dot, dot. Ellipses. Ellipses, thank you. Called on ellipses. Ellipses. Look, I hope that blowing ourselves up works, but... It's really irrelevant to me, as long as I'm with you. And if it kills us, well then... (sighs) I'd rather die with you than live in this world without you. Emphatic period. That was a grammatical nightmare. Yeah. I'm hoping it didn't distract from my point too much. I mean, an emphatic period is just, it's an exclamation point. I don't want to seem desperate. get sick of each other. We're already sick of each other. It's the best. I can survive just fine without you, you know. But there's a chance that this life can be a little less mundane with you in it. Yeah, less mundane. That's a super low bar. That's a great place to start. Again, I'm so sorry that I 
are spoiled on a bunch of plot points, but you brought it on yourself. <laughs> it's okay. I did. If in the section is how to make the sad millennial rom-com actually work, what are some things that kind of stand out to you in this clip? Well, it seems like having seen no parts of this movie, mm-hmm. it's going to not end with a shrug. <laughs> having watched that clip, it's going to end with an emphatic period. Yeah, they're building up to a literal explosion. <laughs> Yeah, and I think emotionally, the part of that that I love so much is what if we get sick of each other? And Mm Niall says, we're already sick of each other. It's the best, right? Yeah. And so that is trying to tell us something about why it's worth putting yourself through hell to be in a relationship. This world is hard, and we maybe don't have the uh, capacity to fix the financial crisis of 2008, But what we do have is the capacity to find someone that makes all of that a little bit easier to handle. That a a bad day with your partner is better than a good day with the financial crisis. Yes, yes. Uh, Based on that, and again, Obvious Child ends with something kind of similar where this guy that she went on a date with, he tried to ask her out again. It kind of got a little weird. Uh, She finds out she is pregnant. She decides to terminate the pregnancy. She tells him, and he shows up to her apartment the day of her appointment with a bouquet of flowers and goes with her to Planned Parenthood and then afterwards sits on the couch with her and makes her food, and they watch a movie together. If I were to, like, help the film industry, this is what I would say. In order to make this movie work, you have to find a way for the people in the movie to actually solve their problem. They need a triumph. They need to succeed at the end of it. The thing that is so brilliant about Palm Springs is that it uses the time loop as a metaphor for millennial angst, where every day you're like, I just wake up. And I go do my dumb job and I make some dumb food and I do the dumb dishes and I watch a dumb show. And then the next day I do it all again. Right. Uh Yeah. And this movie takes place in a time loop. And so it's really easy to make that that connection between the same millennial monotony and the time loop. And then they find a way to get out of the time loop. They haven't fixed the problem of being a millennial, but they have like a real legitimate triumph at the end that makes you feel like the problem has been solved. Obvious Child does the same thing. The lead up to her terminating her pregnancy is that she puts all of that material into her stand-up show. And she Mm. talks about it in this way that is very transformative for her. And so you're seeing someone actually succeed at something. You're seeing them win. You and I say this to each other all the time of like, just give us a win. Just something. Yeah. And you, I think in order to make these movies work, there has to be an actual success in it. I'm just, I'm just listening now. All right. I'm sorry. Not not contributing. You're you're taking notes so that you can write the next great smirk. Yeah. Okay. So the second thing I would say is you have to find a way to explain the answer to that first question that I asked, which is what makes love worth it? Why are, why are we doing this? Why is it even worth our time? We kind of touched on Palm Springs' answer to that question. We touched on obvious trials to that 
answer to that question. But the answer to that question can't be just because what else are we going to do? Which is <laughs> not helpful. Yeah, like what other option do we have? That's not, that's not what you're, that's not an answer to that question. You have to actually compellingly answer that question. Why are we doing this? What makes falling in love worth all of the psychological angst that it could possibly bring? And then the third thing I would say, you can't change the terms of the argument to end the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. If, if you are setting up, if you're using acts one and two to set up a problem, Act three's conclusion has to address those problems. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And I think that's why these movies actually end up kind of unsatisfying sometimes is because you have, you're taking the shortcut of you just have the couple get together usually, but you're not addressing the psychological angst that occurred in the first two, in the first two acts of the movie. Right. The um, internal problem hasn't been fixed at all. Yeah. They've just changed their marital status. Exactly. Or in the case of We Broke Up, that entire, the entire first two thirds of that movie are about how is it can, you can be with someone for 10 years and not be sure if you want to do the rest of your life with them. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion of that movie is nothing is a waste because at least we got to be together. Okay, well, that wasn't the question you were asking for the first (laughs) two-thirds of this movie. Like, that's fine if you want that to be your conclusion, but it doesn't match with the first two-thirds of the movie. This is actually one of my, this is a tangent, this is actually my problem with a lot of rom-coms, is that the solution to the problem is not the solution to the problem that has been happening the entire movie. Uh, This is my problem with Sweet Home Alabama, in addition to the casual racism of that movie. Um, <laughs> but that, Setting the racism aside. Setting, you know, the happy confederacy frame aside, the conclusion of it is not addressing the problem that was set up for the first two-thirds of the movie. Hollywood screenwriters, I know you're all listening to this. That's how you make this movie work for you. You have to give our couple a way to solve the problem. You have to find a way to explain what makes love actually worth it for these people today in this context. And three, you can't change the terms of the argument. So the solution to the problem has to actually address the problem from the first two thirds of the movie. And that, my I really friend, feel like you, you've you've solved a lot of problems for me today, Suzanne. Oh, good. What problems? <laughs> and for Hollywood. Solve? What problems did I solve for you? I don't even need to go to therapy anymore. I I just. Oh um, no no no. <laughs> we've just you've walked me through many a relationship and uh, some of the the problems and some of the solutions. So thank you. I do what I can. I still feel like I don't want to watch them. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> Except for Palm Springs, which I'm going to watch because I value your friendship. I'm really interested in this as a genre, and I'm interested in the millennial media. And I, even though I don't want to watch them, the mirror for our generation is something that is a fun, like, not fun. It's an interesting, like, exercise, I guess. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm glad that we talked about the smirks, and I'm... I like your um, your problem solving. The the movie that I mentioned a few times, uh, sleeping with other people, with one of your favorite Jasons or with your two favorite <laughs> Jasons. One of the things that I think 
that one does is they're kind of sad, um, but this is another friends to lovers story. They're kind mm-hmm. of sad, but their relationship is never the thing that makes them sad. Ah, so okay. their relationship is the port in the storm. Mm. And then it's them deciding, is it worth potentially damaging this port in the storm to build my life around? Such uh, a place of yeah. safety for me. Is that worth risking? And it makes a great movie. Like, it's a great rom-com. I mean, that at least feels more aspirational. Like, it's not a fantasy, but at least that feels like, like you're saying, this is why it's worth it to be in love. Yes. If this is my port in the storm, then I understand why these people are together. If any, if any think piece writers out there take this term from me and put it in an, an article on Slate or The Wrap, You'll be hearing from Stinkpot, our attorney. <laughs> For new listeners of the podcast, Stinkpot is Hannah's dog. And he also for the first year of the podcast, functioned she, as our, she functioned as our attorney. She she still is our attorney. She just doesn't live in the same home with me anymore. Yeah, she's on retainer. Yeah. Uh, can I throw you a curveball? Of course, always. I'm going to say I'm tired of talking. Do you want to, for the first time ever on this podcast, do the outro? Have I really never done it before? I think maybe you did it one time. There was one time where we switched, where, where you did the intro. Yeah. Yeah. One, the lost, forgotten episodes. Yeah. <laughs> now we'd like to hear from you listeners. You can get involved in the discussion by tweeting at us or commenting on this episode's post on Instagram. Both places we are at wellherepod. You can also email us at wellherepod at gmail.com. And don't forget to go to wherever you get your podcasts and click that, wait, love can't fix the financial crisis button, which you may know as a follow button. And until next time, I'm Hannah, and I'm going to fix all my problems by buying some potted plants. And I'm Suzanne, and I spend my days as a sad millennial just hopping from one small little treat to the next. And well, here we are. Show me one more stream. Show me one more tree, but make it evergreen. Bop, evergreen. I see a mother there, a lover and a child. I know a war will come and take away.